Good morning, I'm Sun Beng. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Today's reading is taken from Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sun Bing, for reading so well for us this morning. Uh, before we uh, get into the preaching of God's Word, I have an announcement to make, and it's a very happy announcement. Uh, yesterday, Ben and Darylin, some of you would know them. Uh, ben is the son of Peter and Sharon Chong, who will be becoming members on the 27th of November. They got married yesterday, and it was a beautiful wedding ceremony. So if you do meet Ben and Darylin or Peter and Sharon, please do help me to congratulate them as we celebrate their, the beginning of their new life together. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much that this is your word. We pray that as we come to your word, uh, that we would be encouraged and strengthened and helped uh, by your word. Speak to us, Lord. Spirit of God, we pray that you would take your word and write it upon our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, we've been working our way through the book of Romans, and over the last few weeks, we've seen the many beautiful gifts that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen that even though we are ungodly and unrighteous and deserving of death, God in His mercy and in His grace gives us His own righteousness as a free gift to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And because of God's graciousness, there are several blessings that we receive because of the gospel. In Romans chapter 3, we see that we stand justified by faith alone. We have a perfect performance record before God, not because of the things we have done, not because we've obeyed the law, not because we have done good works, but because Jesus Christ has given that gift to us as a gift of God's grace. And because we're justified by faith, Romans 4 tells us that we are counted as righteous. We have been given the position or the status of righteousness. Romans 5 tells us that because we have been justified by faith alone, we have been reconciled to God. 
Our relationship with God is now at peace, and that is an unshakable, unchangeable relationship that gives us hope, the hope of glory. More than that, as Joel preached for us last week, although we were in Adam, once we have faith in Christ, we are now in Him. So we have life in Christ. Now, all of these wonderful things come to us as a free gift of God's grace. And that is why in Romans 5.20, Paul can conclude, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where there is much sin, there is even more grace to cover over that sin. Now, these are wonderful gifts of the gospel. And the one thing that binds all of them together is the freeness of these gifts. It's the freeness of God's grace by which these things come to us. We cannot earn any of these things by our own human effort, not by obeying the law, not by doing good works. We can only receive them freely as a gift from Jesus Christ. And friends, let me just say that the freeness of God's grace is what makes Christianity unique and utterly compelling. There is no worldview and no system in the world, no religion in the world that tells you that you are accepted first before you are obeying. Every other system in the world tells you that you must do something in order to be accepted. Christianity says you cannot do anything to be accepted. All you can do is receive God's righteousness as a free gift. This freeness of God's grace is what makes Christianity unique and utterly compelling. But at the same time, this freeness of God's grace is also what opens up Christianity to critique and even mockery. Now, the poet W.H. Auden once said, I like sinning, God likes forgiving. The world is admirably arranged. He's mocking the freeness of God's grace. Perhaps you've heard these types of objections to the freeness of God's grace, even among Christians. If grace is free, why should I care about doing good works? If grace is free, why should I obey God's law? If grace is free, then why shouldn't I sin as much as possible? If grace is free, why should I care about church or worship or prayer or the Word of God or holiness or doing good in the world? If grace is free, why don't I just live a life of sin? Now, if you've ever asked questions like these, you know, you need to know that you're not alone. The Apostle Paul himself anticipates that there will be such objections to the freeness of God's grace. Which is why he takes both Romans 6 and 7 to address three very common objections to the freeness of God's grace. Come with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 1. The first objection, which is the one we'll be looking at today, goes like this. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we just sin more and more so that more and more grace comes our way? Romans 6, verse 15. Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace. And finally, Romans 7, verse 7, what then shall we say? Is the law, the law of God, is that sin? Well, what we'll see as Paul addresses each of these objections over the next three weeks is that it's precisely because of the freeness of God's grace that makes us obey. And it's precisely the freeness of God's grace that makes us take His law seriously. Over the next three weeks, we'll be taking care of, like we will be uh, considering each of these objections in turn. But today, uh, my job is just to look at Romans 6, verse 1 to 14. Uh, let me just say to you, uh, I was reading that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a hero of mine, 
another minister came to him and said, when are you going to preach a series on the book of Romans? And he says, not until I understand Romans 6. And I never understood Lloyd-Jones until I studied Romans 6. So this is a difficult passage. Uh, it's very tightly argued, so I need to ask you for your patience, but also your concentration. But let's look at the first objection. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And let's look at Romans 6, verse 1 to 14, under three headings. What we are, verses 1 to 10. What we do, verses 11 to 13. And why we can, verse 14. So come with me to Romans 6, verse 1. This is the first objection to the freeness of God's grace. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we keep sinning so that we get more grace? Paul's answer, verse 2, by no means, God forbid, may it never be. He's emphatic here, and this is his argument in a nutshell. How can we who die to sin still live in it? This is Paul's answer to why we cannot continue in sin. We have died to sin in Jesus Christ. That's his whole argument in a nutshell, so we can all go home right now. But well, Paul knows that unless he explains to us what it means for us to have died to sin, it's not really very useful to us. So we need to understand two things for this to become helpful to us. Number one, we need to understand how we died to sin. And number two, we need to understand what it means to have died to sin. So let's consider the first question. How did Christian, you, die to sin? Let's look at Paul's argument. Come with me to verse 3 and 4. I really need you in the text today because Paul is really arguing in a very tight and, and compact way. So I need your attention. I need your help. Romans 6 verse 3. Paul says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Now, we've learned over the last few months and weeks that baptism is a physical ritual that points to a spiritual reality. And broadly speaking, there are two realities. One is the reality that we have been forgiven of our sins. But the other reality that baptism points to is that we are included among God's people. When someone is baptized, it's a picture that if we have faith in Christ, He will forgive us of our sins. But more than that, He will take us out of the world and make us one of His people. Well, Romans 6, verse 3 and 4 tells us how God does that. He makes us one of his people, not just by including us in the church, but including us into the person of Jesus Christ. You've been baptized into Christ. You've been included into Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, look at verses 5 and 6. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. To be baptized into Christ, to be included into Christ, means that you are united with him. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. Richard Gaffin says that it is your solidarity with Christ. Friends, look at me for a moment. This means that when you believed in Jesus Christ, it wasn't just that your sins were forgiven. You were taken out of the world and included and intertwined with Christ. And you have such a union with him that his death becomes your death. And his life becomes your life. You are now in union with Christ. You have solidarity with Christ. 
Now, friends, there have been a number of weddings at OCC lately, and yesterday at a wedding that we did, I was reminded again of a phrase in our wedding liturgy, and it goes something like this. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, sets forth the sacred and exalted nature of marriage when he likens it to the mystical union that exists between Christ and the church. It tells us that marriage is an illustration of our unity with Christ, of our union with Christ, of this mystical union between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. You see, friends, when two people marry, they become intertwined. Their souls are intermingled. They take on each other's assets. Let's use that word in the broadest possible sense. They also take on each other's liabilities. Let's also use that word in the broadest sense. Now, if one party is in debt, but the other party is incredibly wealthy, when they come together in marriage, when they come together in union, that union wipes out the debt of both of them. And that, my friends, is how we have died to sin. Christ is incredibly wealthy. We are incredibly poor. But when we have believed in him, we are united with him. And when we are united with him, his death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. And his life becomes our life. We have union with Christ. And that, my friends, is how we have died to sin. It's not something you did for yourself. It's something that was done for you in union with Christ. But because you were in union with Christ, insofar as Christ has done it, you have done it. Insofar as Christ has experienced it, you have experienced it. You have died to sin and you are alive to God because you are united with Christ. That is how you die to sin. But friends, what does it mean for us to die, to have died, to sin. I want to admit to you that this is a matter of much controversy. Over the centuries, the church has not really agreed uh, on this matter. So I also need you to pay full attention now because I'm going to be summarizing for you a lot of things. And I think for us to understand what it means, we first need to understand what it doesn't mean. So firstly, to have died to sin does not mean that you no longer want to sin. You know, sometimes you say, this person is dead to me. It means you've got no more emotion towards this person. And so we tend to think, oh, when, when he says you're dead to sin, it means you have no more emotion towards sin. Well, that's not the case. Because Paul, in verses 12 to 14, will urge us not to sin, which means we still do want to sin. So that's not what it means. But friends, it also doesn't mean simply that we no longer ought to sin. You see, friends, that's far too weak. It does not say we ought to die to sin. It says we die to sin. Something decisive has happened. And friends, whether or not Jesus died on the cross, we ought not to sin. It goes against God's holy character. So it doesn't mean that you no longer want to sin. It doesn't mean you no longer ought to sin. That's far too weak. Neither does it mean you are no longer guilty of sin. Now listen to me very carefully. You are no longer guilty of sin. Paul has already established that in Romans 3 to 5. Because Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, the penalty has been paid, the guilt is taken away, you are free because of Jesus' death on the cross on your behalf. So you truly are no longer guilty of sin. 
But friends, here in Romans 6, Paul is not simply rehashing old material like some of my wedding sermons. He's establishing something new. He's going further. So let's look at the text. Let's see what he's saying here. Look at Romans 5.21. It says, Sin reigned in death. In Romans 6.6, Paul says, We no longer are enslaved to sin. Verse 7, We're set free from sin. Verse 9, death no longer has dominion. Notice these words. The reign of sin, the enslavement of sin, we're set free from sin, the dominion of sin. You see, Paul is presenting here sin as a king, as a power, as a monarch. Now, friends, when Queen Elizabeth II died, they announced the end of the Elizabethan, I can't even pronounce it, Elizabethan age. And when King Charles III ascended the throne, they announced the beginning of a new age, a new reign, the Carolean age. In some sense, this is what's being said here. Sin is like a power, a king, a monarch who reigns in death. He has dominion over us before we are in Christ. But now that we've believed in Jesus Christ, sin and death are no longer our king. The age of sin in you and me is past. What we have now is the reign of Christ and the reign of grace. We truly are destined to reign, okay? but not in the sense that many have told us about. We are destined to reign in Christ and in Grace. Some of you say I don't call out people enough, okay, just putting it out there. We are, we, to, to have died to sin means that sin no longer rules over us as master, as monarch, as king. Sin no longer has absolute power and authority over us because we have died to sin in the death of Christ. Now, how did that happen? Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Very important verse here. Okay, Without this, you're not going to understand the rest of the passage. And to understand verse 6, we need to understand two things. The meaning of the old self and the meaning of the body of sin. The meaning of the old self and the meaning of the body of sin. Now what is... His old self. Well, remember last week as Joel preached for us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 21, he talks about two lives that we lived. One life we lived in Adam, and one life after we've become Christians, we live in Christ. So you can either be in Adam, or you can be in Christ. You cannot be both at the same time. This old self, in context, refers to who you and I are before we believed in Christ. It's you and I, B.C. It's our old self in Adam rather than in Christ. Now, when Jesus died, your old self was crucified with him. Your old self is now dead and gone. Now, in some weddings, you have the lighting of unity candles. How many of you have seen the lighting of unity candles 
Okay, a couple of you, right? Now, what happens in the lighting of unity candles? You have two candles that are brought together to a single candle. That single candle is lit. And then what happens to these two single candles? Anyone? They're extinguished. They're put out. Now, these two single candles represented two separate lives that have now come together in this brighter new life. But after they've come together, what happens to these two candles is that they're extinguished. It tells us that the single life is no more. The old self is no more. What remains is something more beautiful and brighter, the new life where you are in union with one another, where you are in union with Christ. So when he says that our old self was crucified, it means the person we were in Adam, the person we were before Christ. Christ has died, you have died. You have died, it means your old self is no longer alive. Now, why was the old self crucified? It says here, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, let me just say, uh, the translation in ESV, where he says, the body of sin might be brought to nothing, I think it's a bit too strong a translation. I would rather translate it that the body of sin might not dominate. Okay, there's an idea there, not of such finality, or maybe even the body of sin might be gradually brought to nothing. It's not as definite as the way the ESV has translated it. So the old self has died. Now, I need you to follow me on this one. So that the body of sin might no longer dominate or might be brought gradually to nothing. So it's important for us to understand what this body of sin is. Now look at verse 12. Verse 12 tells us, Let not sin reign in your mortal body. What's your mortal body? It's your physical body. And it's the same word there used for body of sin. So body of sin can also be translated sinful body. It's the aspects of our body that are still given to sin. And when the Bible talks about our physical bodies, it talks about it in totality. It's not just your flesh and blood. It's your thought, your words, your deed, who you are, basically. Now, if you think about it, we can only express ourselves through our physical bodies. If you love someone, it's conceived in your heart, but it can only be expressed in your thoughts, your words, and your deeds. Your physical body is necessary for you to express what's in your heart. If you hate someone, it's the same thing. You conceive of that hate in your heart, but it can only be expressed through your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your physical body. It's the same with sin. You conceive of sin in your heart, but it can only be expressed through your physical body, your thoughts, your words, your deeds. So the sinful body, are aspects of our physical body, our thoughts, our words, and deeds that are still given over to the old self. Now, let me illustrate this for us. Imagine that you work for a really unreasonable boss. Some of you would find that quite easy to imagine. He makes you do things that are unethical. You're very unhappy at work. You're afraid of him, but you feel trapped because he has a power over you. You need the job. You need the money. You feel trapped and enslaved in this job situation. But one day, 
you're free. You're given a new job. It's a better job, it's a better company, and it's a better boss. So you quit this old company, you quit this old boss, and you join this new boss and this new company, and it's wonderful. Now the problem is, as you begin work in this new company, you've learned some bad habits from the old boss. And it actually takes you some time to get rid of those old habits. Your new boss needs to kindly come to you and say, um, we don't actually do things like that here. And you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't do such things. Now imagine that on your way to work, you bump into your old boss in the MRT. When you see him, you begin to palpitate, you begin to, to fear. Now, because he's forgetful, he's forgotten that you no longer work for the company and work for him. So he looks at you and he barks at you and he says, get that work done by lunchtime. Now, you're afraid of him, but he doesn't have a power over you anymore because you no longer work for him. You, he can no longer control you, but you feel that he can. So you might actually just do the piece of work that he asked you to do out of fear. What do you need to do in that kind of a situation? You need to remind yourself, my old self, is dead. I'm not working for that company anymore. This boss has no power over me. And over time, your body of sin, the bad habits you've picked up from this old company and old boss can gradually be brought to nothing. It no longer needs to dominate. That's what's being spoken about here. You're dead to sin so that your old identity, your old person is brought to nothing. And that makes it possible, friends, look at me carefully, for you to live a life of holiness. You're dead to sin, and you're alive to God. Now, there is something objective that has happened here. Christ died, and Christ rose again. It's not something that you did for yourself. It's something that was done for you. But friends, you need to experience it in your own heart and in your own life. Which is why in verse 8, Paul says, if we have died to Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Not only do you need to have it happen to you, you need to believe it so that it's real to your heart. In verse 9 and 10, we know, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives he lives to God. What has happened in the death of Christ is a historical reality, but it's by the Spirit's help that we truly know and we truly believe it in our hearts so that we can live differently, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's what we have, friends. That's who we are in union with Christ. We're dead to sin and we're alive to God. Now, because of who we are, what do we do as a result of what, what do we do? Well, look at verse 11. Paul says, so, connecting all that is here said before, so, you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that word consider is also the word count. It's also the word reckon. We were reckoned with righteousness by God himself. You're counted as righteous. Now you must count yourself dead to sin. You must remind yourself often of who you really are in Christ. You must get other people to remind yourself of who you really are in Christ. Your old self is gone. You're dead to sin. 
You're alive to God. That is who you are. Consider yourself as such. The next, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Sin will continue to tempt you like that horrible old boss. But because you no longer work for that company, that horrible old boss no longer has a power over you. You need not and you must not let sin reign in you. You can and you must say no because there is a new and greater power that lives in you. The power of the gospel, you're living a new life, the resurrection life. Now, how do we do that? And this is where Paul gets really practical. Look at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, the members there are components of your physical body, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, basically who you are. Now that the old self is dead, you must no longer give your words, your thoughts, your deeds to your old way of life, to your old habits. Instead, you are to present yourself to God. You are to offer your thoughts, your words, and deeds for His use. In other words, it's not enough for you to refrain from giving yourself to bad things. You must also start giving yourself to good things. And that is why some of us have so much issues in our fight with sin. We're just saying no to bad things, which is important and essential. But we're not saying yes to good, godly, and righteous things. In 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul says, Flee the evil desires of youth. And in context, those evil desires are actually being argumentative and being very controversial and always fighting with people. Okay? It's not even sexual here, these evil desires. He says, flee the evil desires of youth. But what does he tell us to do? He says to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Stop and say no to bad things, but pursue godly things. But he goes on to say, along with those who call on the Lord, out of a pure heart. Let me just say this emphatically to you. You will never conquer sin on your own. If you're not in deep community and relationship with people, sin will conquer you. That's how it works out. You need to say no to bad things and yes to good things, not by yourself, but together, together with others who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You see, friends, when we give ourselves to sinful things, we tend to think we're in control right? We're in control. I'm in control of my life. I'm the master of my own destiny. I'll do what I want. But what happens when we give ourselves to vices is that we find these vices actually control us. Now, these not, might not need to be sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Of course, if you give yourself to those things, they enslave you, and you need more and more of those things. You're not in control. They enslave you. It could even be things like pride and self-centeredness. If you continue in a place of pride and self-centeredness, you will never deep, build deep relationships with others because your pride and self-centeredness controls you. You always feel better than others. You always feel superior. And when you feel superior to other people, you will never humble yourself to say, I think your opinion matters. I think maybe we could be friends. And that is the problem. When you give yourself to sin, you're controlled by it, even though you think you're in control. So friends, 
practically, what does this look like? It means you no longer give your thoughts, your words, and deeds to a life that is no longer yours. Stop that and start giving your thoughts, your words, and deeds to what honors God. What are some things that you need to flee today, friends? And what are some things you need to give yourself to today? It gets really practical. It could be what you do on social media and the amount of time you spend there. What are some things you need to stop doing on social media and some things you need to start doing in social media? It could be the way you spend your leisure time. What are some things you need to stop in your leisure times and what are some things that you need to start? It gets even more practical. Maybe you're given to indulging yourself on Christmas Eve. Well, there's an opportunity for you to present your members to God as those who've been brought from death to life by simply volunteering. Now, I'm not just selling koyot here. I'm saying some of the most basic things in our walk in holiness are incredibly practical. If your time is taken up with, giving, with doing God's will, you won't have time to present your members as instruments for unrighteousness. So friends, when we plead with you to join a community group, when we plead with you to give yourself to the service of God for fewer people to do more things, it's not just for you to serve the church, it's for you to serve Christ. And it's for you to serve your own sanctification and holiness. What are some things you need to stop doing? And what are some things that you need to start doing? I'm just going to push this now. Don't wait anymore. Don't wait anymore. Just do it, Nike. Why can we do it? Now, you can see some of your faces. This is a hard sermon. It's, it's hard to listen to. It's hard to preach, okay? I can tell you this, okay? And you're dejected. Uh, you're feeling like this is so daunting because there are sins in your life that have just dominated you for so long and you have no idea how you're going to flee. So all of this sounds good and later we sing the worship song, feel very good. But after that, I know I'm going to fall back into the same patterns again. And so you feel that upon your heart. And let me just say, I feel that too. Which is why I think Paul ends the way he does. Come with me to verse 14. Paul once again reminds us, sin will have no dominion over you. He reminds us again, sin's power over you has been broken. Now, we would expect him to say, since Christ has died or you're baptized into Christ. But what does he say? No, he does not say that because he's already said that. He introduces something new. He says, since you are under, not under law, but under grace. Did you notice that? He's bringing in the law and grace. So he assures us once again, sin will not control you. And he tells us why you're not under law, but under grace. You see, friends, to be under law means that you continue to try to obey God's law in order to be accepted. To be under grace means that you're resting in God's free acceptance of you. You can find sin in the spirit of being under law. 
You can find spin in the spirit of, if I do this, God is going to accept me, and I'm going to be a great and wonderful Christian. Now, friends, if you fight sin with the spirit of being under law, when you fail, you're going to be so demoralized that you're not going to want to fight sin anymore. That's why people do swing in their spiritual lives. You know, if you've known friends like that, one hand they're so spiritual, the next end they're like, wow, like what happened there? Well, you're fighting sin under law. It's still dependent on you. You feel demoralized and, you're still, and you won't want to fight sin anymore. Now, if you succeed in fighting sin, and some of you can because you're very self-controlled, what happens to you? You start getting very proud. I must be somebody. Oh my goodness, all that, that deposit of, of Bible knowledge, you know, in the past, in my uni days, that was so good. I'm somebody. What happens there? You get proud. And pride is sin. So you haven't really fought sin. You've just deepened your sinfulness in a different way. So if you fight sin while under law, you're just going to become more sinful or dejected and you're going to give up. Now what does it mean to fight sin under grace? It means that you know in your mind and you sense in your heart that Jesus really does love you perfectly and unchangeably. You are in union with him no matter what. And when you know that and feel it and experience it, you're not going to be lax with sin. You're going to fight sin not out of fear, but out of love for the one who has loved you the most. And when you succeed, you're not going to get proud. You're going to give him the praise because you know, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And when you fail, and you will fail, my friends, his forgiveness is never too far from you. He forgives you. He picks you up. He sets you right, and you try again. That is what it means to fight sin while under grace. I'm going to close with this. Friends, Augustine of Hippo was a brilliant theologian and philosopher of the early church, greatly influential. But did you know, friends, that prior to coming to Christ, Augustine led a very promiscuous life. I've, oft, I've even heard him described as a sex addict. It is said that after he became a Christian, he was in a particular city once. It may be an apocryphal account, but it's very Augustinian. A former mistress saw him on the streets, and she was very excited, so she called out to him, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. Okay, like old English, okay, it is I. He turns around, he sees her, and he goes the other way. He completely ignores her. So this woman is perplexed. I mean, the last time I did that, he, he came straight into my arms. So she comes to him again and she goes, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. Old English again, okay? And again, he ignores her and walks the other way. So she's really desperate now. She goes and she stands right in front of him and she says, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. This time, 
Augustine looks at her and he does speak to her. And this is what, this is what he says. Yes, but it is no longer I. You see what Augustine is saying? The old Augustine is dead and buried because Christ has died. It is no longer I. This Augustine is the new Augustine who has life in Christ. And some of you need to say that to the things that most dominate your life. Yes, but it is no longer I. In Jesus Christ, you are no longer who you were. You are dead to sin. You're alive to God. You're not under law. You're under grace. And that is why, friends, you simply cannot continue to live a life of sin. I'm just going to bring this home for us. Two things, friends. Some of you, I plead with you to reckon with this. If you've heard this and you continue to go away with yalla, 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 you need to reckon with whether or not you're truly in Christ. You can be in church all your life. It doesn't make you a Christian. You can be serving, doing Bible study, being an elder, being a pastor. It doesn't make you a Christian. You need to be born again. You need to be born again. Reckon with that reality. Are you in Christ? Or are you still in Adam? For others of you, maybe this is the way that God will bring comfort to you. That sin that continues to pull you down. That is not who you are, friend. That is not who you are. You are a new person in Christ. It is no longer you. And the more you know that and experience that upon your hearts, the more you can say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Let's pray. Let's spend a moment just to be quiet before God and respond in our own hearts to Him. Oh, Father, we come before you and remind ourselves again that you are such a good and loving God. While we were yet sinners, you sent Christ to die for our sins. While we were far from you, you brought us near. You carried us into your very own heart. And Father, you did more than that. You united us with Christ. And so today, Father, we pray that you make that a reality in our hearts. Help us to really know and believe that we have died to sin. The old self is gone. And therefore, we have all that we need to live the new life. We have your grace. We have your power. We have your love. Help us, O oh God, to see that and grow in grace and grow in knowledge and grow in hope and grow, Father, in all the ways that you want us to grow as individuals and as a church. In Jesus' name we pray.